Fred and Christopher for playing this morning. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts and chapter 20. You should have gone a little yellow slip on the way in. It's got the sermon outline for this morning, and the backside has the Bible study questions. And you'll notice if you look down the, on the outline side, you'll see points three and four in smaller text at the very bottom, and you'll notice it says July 2nd and July 9th. Uh, as I was reading and studying and meditating and thinking about the passage and just working my way through this passage over and over and over again in the last couple of weeks, uh, the Lord really has been working on my own heart and the, what it means to be a shepherd of God's sheep. And there's some really powerful things that he's been showing me and I think we need to consider as a church. And so we are not going to just barrel through this, cover the text and move on. We're going to take our time and we're going to work through it and learn some good lessons. In particular, this morning, as you can see, we're looking at points four and five of the second main point, And that's it. There was so much in there that uh, affected my own heart and challenged me deeply that we're just going to take the time. We need to look at this carefully and slowly. So let's, again, we're going to read God's Word together, so I invite you to find Acts 20, and we're going to read from verse 17, and invite you to stand with your Bibles as we read the Word of God together. And I would call you to give attention to the words of the one living and true God from Acts 20, verses 17 to 38. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all hum humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying the bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to, solemnly te sorry, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up 
and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they should see his face no more. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, this morning as we come again to open your word before us, Father, we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning that you would give both boldness boldness and utterance to make known the truth of the gospel. We pray, O God, that you would give enlightenment to the eyes of every heart so that we may know the hope to which we have been called. I pray, Father, that you would bring conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment that you would bring also edification and encouragement and consolation to each one of us according to their need. Father, I pray that the preaching of the word of God may be this morning in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that our faith might rest on you and not on, on the wisdom of men. Father, I pray that the result of our time together this morning in the word would be love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Father, I pray again, that the speaker would decrease, but Christ would increase, that we would have ears to hear what you would say. And we ask you these things in the precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And amen. Please have a seat. Paul's farewell speech to the Ephesian elders gives us an example and some instruction for how we are to shepherd the church of God. We need to hear these messages, these four messages, for the recognized shepherds in our church to be challenged and greatly encouraged about shepherding God's church with the right heart attitude, mindful of both our relationship to Christ the Good Shepherd and our relationship to the church which he has purchased with his blood. For the whole church, all of us need to hear these messages because we're all informal shepherds. We're all setting example for those who are following along behind us. We need to be challenged to know how to pray for those who are formally recognized as elders and shepherds in this church. We need to know, we need, sorry, to be challenged and greatly encouraged as we all shepherd those around us. Husbands and fathers, as we shepherd our wives and families and, and friends and children, wives and mothers, as you shepherd your husbands and children, your family and your friends, we're all to be busy shepherding one another. Just to give a recap from last week's message, and the first main point was the shepherds were to set godly examples, examples in our speech, our words, our language, our tone with one another. It's not so much preaching and teaching in mind there. It's how we speak and communicate with one another. Our godly conduct is to be an example to those who are coming along behind. Our love for each other, by which the whole world will know that we are his disciples. We're to set an example in that. We're to set an example in our faith in God's person and power, and also by our lives of purity, living holy as he who called us is holy. 
The second main point was that shepherds, we are to serve the Lord. We serve our maker, the Holy Spirit, who makes shepherds for his church, shaping and fashioning and forming shepherds. He uses our journey through this life of faith, the examples of of those who went before us, and the teaching, preaching, and admonishment from Scripture to make us into shepherds. We are his workmanship, as Paul says. Before I move on, we're talking this morning a lot about the heart of the shepherd and God's work to make that shepherd. I want to share a poem with you. I heard it many, many years ago at the Vancouver Easter Conference, the Brethren Conference we had every year, and uh, Dave Callahan shared this. And I, it, the one line just stuck out to me, so I went and searched on Scripture and found the poem. It's anonymous, but this is how it goes. You may recognize it. It says, When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, When God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world should be amazed, watch God's methods, watch God's ways. How God ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How God hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how God bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how God uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. If I could change one line of that poem, it would be this. How God bends and sometimes breaks. Because the reality of that, that's what God does in making shepherds. You might be wondering, why is God taking me through some difficult times? Why is God bringing hardship? Why are there some things that just seem to wrestle against and are burdening my heart? The answer is God is making and molding you into the person he designed you to be whether it's a formal recognized elder and a shepherd in a church, or whether it's those who are shepherding those all around them. God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's about. God's shepherds are made by God. We serve the Lord, our maker. Secondly, we saw that we serve the Lord in submission to God. Bound in and by the Holy Spirit, Paul said, captive to his will, obedient to the end. He is the Lord. We are the servants. We are his under shepherds. He is the Lord. We will all give an account to the Lord for our ministry and our lives. For those who are recognized elders and shepherds in the church, we will give an account for those with whom we have been charged to shepherd and watch over. God's Shepherds serve God in submission to him. Thirdly, we saw that we serve the Lord with self-denial. Paul counted his life as nothing in value or preciousness compared with knowing Christ, obeying Christ, and serving Christ. Self-denial is saying no to self and yes to God. We deny ourselves for the sake of Christ, his glory, and his church. Shepherding is a sacrificial service to God in the context of a local church. God's shepherds serve God with self-denial. And we're going to pick up with point four there on your outline. 
shepherds serve the Lord with all humility. If you look back at your Bibles, you'll see in verses 18 and 19 that Paul says how he was serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials. To restate that, Paul was performing the responsibilities of a slave to the Lord with modesty, lowliness of mind, a true understanding of himself before the Lord, his master. Paul, in describing his service to God in the, in the Ephesian church, is providing us with an example of how we must also serve the Lord. God's shepherds serve the Lord with all humility, Paul says. So what is humility? Well, as I just mentioned, it's a lowliness of mind. It's a modesty. It's a right and correct view of ourselves before God. Humility is to be self-effacing and unassuming. We're to have no high views of ourselves as over the sheep. If anything, we are under the sheep to support and carry and care for and lead them. Remember how Paul sees himself before the Lord. He calls himself a doulos, a slave of Christ Jesus. In Acts 20 and verse 19, you could say when he says serving the Lord, it's slaving for the Lord. Romans 1 verse 1, Titus 1 verse 1, Philippians 1 verse 1. And all through his letters, you see the same thing. Paul calls himself a doulos, a servant, literally a slave for the Lord. A slave is one who's been bought with a price to serve his owner and master. Christ purchased us with his blood to serve him. Elder, deacon, member, missionary, evangelist, active or retired, we're all to be slaves and servants of God. He calls himself a desmios in Ephesians 3.1, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. A prisoner of the Lord is one whose life is bound to Christ, bound with Christ, not in misery and drudgery, dungeons and darkness, but a prisoner shut inside the walled garden of indescribable joy and fellowship with God, our master and captor, our father and our God. Paul saw himself in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9 as the least of all the apostles, he regarded all the other apostles as greater than himself. He who had persecuted the church, he said, I was the least of all the apostles. He saw himself in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 10 as content with weaknesses. He saw himself in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 11 as a nobody. And all those descriptions weren't just polite, false humility sayings of Paul calculated to evoke respect or sympathy from his listeners and readers. Paul truly knew who he was before the Lord. He was a humble, modest, yet a right and true understanding of himself before the Lord. And brother elder, this morning, how do we see ourselves before the Lord? Is Christ my Lord and I, his slave and prisoner, held captive to do his will? I think it was Samuel was told to say when the Lord came to speak to him, Speak, Lord, your servant listens. How many of us in our prayers before the Lord are in effect saying, Speak, sorry, listen, Lord, your servant speaking. There's a difference in there. He was a servant, and we are to be servants 
held captive to do his will? Do we see ourselves as the least of all our brethren, as nobodies among somebodies? Do we see ourselves as sinners saved only by God's wonderful, matchless grace? Sinners saved through Christ's life and suffering and death and resurrection to serve God and his church by leading them and feeding them, protecting them and guiding them in paths of righteousness, as we saw in Psalm 23 in our study this week comforting them through the valley of the shadow of dark places. Shepherds are sinners saved by God's grace to serve God and his church. That's all we are. And brothers and sisters, it's so tragic when shepherds begin to get a bit of a ticket on themselves, start to believe their own press reports, start to believe their own publications, and get a little too high and mighty in their own eyes. And God has a way of bringing shepherds in those moments to their knees to recognize who they truly are. He is the Lord. We are but his servants. So how do we see ourselves? What perspective do we have of ourselves before the God whom we serve? Beloved, I'm convinced that part of the reason that Paul makes as much as he does of his state before God throughout his letters is as an example to us. Because the opposite problem is so devastating. Prideful shepherds that get amongst God's sheep. It's pride that leads us to lording it over the sheep. To abusive and rough handling of the sheep. It's taking advantage of the sheep is what pride brings. Manipulating the sheep for our own advantage. It's pride that goes before a great fall. It's pride that God deals with severely. Especially for those who are in ministry of the word. So what else does the Bible say about serving and humility? In Philippians 2 and verse 3, humility is to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind to regard one another as more important than ourselves. In Micah 6 and verse 8, humility is necessary for service. Micah says, God has told you, O man, what is good And what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Humility is necessary for service. In Psalm 138 and verse 6, the Bible says that those who walk in humility are regarded by God himself. (laughs) That's a promise, isn't it? For those of us who humble ourselves before the living living God, he turns his eye toward us and regards us. The psalmist writes, for though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, the humble, but the haughty and proud he knows from afar. In Psalm 9, verse 12, the prayers and cries story of the humble are heard by God. The Bible says, when he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. In James 4, verse 10, Scripture promises us that for those who humble themselves in the presence of the Lord, he will exalt us. In Isaiah 57, verse 15, God, who is the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, who dwells in a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, God dwells with those who are humble. If we will humble ourselves, we will know the presence of God close by us. 
which makes so much sense when you read the next one. In Job 22 and verse 29, Scripture promises us that he will save the humble person, which is so amazing. Because besides Paul and Moses, Abraham, David, and Hezekiah, the greatest example of humility to be found in all the Scriptures is our Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Philippians 2, Paul writes, he humbled, sorry, he emptied himself taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God the Son humbled himself to save all those who will humble themselves and repent and believe the gospel. All we, all of us, in pride and arrogance, have turned away from God in disobedience. We've all gone our own way. We've had no fear of God before our eyes. We're without hope, with only an expectation of eternal separation from God in hell. But if we will humble ourselves and turn in faith towards the living God, he will save us and adopt us and fill us with his spirit. He will use those who serve him with all humility to shepherd other sinners to follow and serve the Lord also. Consider the great examples you have of humility. Paul performed the duties of a slave to the Lord and the church with all humility. Christ performed the duties of a slave to his father and for his people with all humility. No man alive, not one, has any idea what humility is in comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ. From the heights of glory, he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. And the call of Scripture, beloved, is for us to perform the duties of slaves to the Lord our God in the service of his church that he purchased with his own blood. So how do we do it? I mean, how, how does it happen? That's a great question to ask. Well, first of all, we remember the examples we have in Scripture. We look to them. We remember the examples that God has provided in our lives. We study the Scriptures to see and know the example we have in Christ. We spend time gazing on the Lord in glory through the Scriptures, and we spend time studying them to know who we are, what we're saved from, and what we've been saved into. And in submission to God, the Holy Spirit, we humble ourselves. It's primarily and fundamentally a change of perspective about who we are. We're to humble ourselves. You know, beloved, it would be so easy to just skip over this heart stuff and jump to the, the, the things that shepherds do. Leading, feeding, protecting, guiding, all that stuff. We could spend a great time. We're going to in a couple of weeks when we get there. But the heart of the shepherd behind it all is so much more important. Because all those outward actions that we can do as shepherds, leading, guiding, feeding the flock, as important as they are, if the heart of the matter, our hearts are not right before God, those actions won't have God's blessing on them. It's the heart that God's interested in. It's funny, I remember a story, um, Jabe Nicholson, it doesn't mean to you, but Heather will remember, told a story about a man he went to see, he had a youth group, and he was, uh, his words, he was the geekiest guy he'd ever seen. His pants were six inches too short, he, he, he was a little bit overweight, and he had glasses, and he was just kind of a nerdy guy. 
And 400 kids used to pack into the church to listen to him talk. And my friend said to him, what's your secret? He said, you just tell him the truth and point him to Jesus. He was a quiet, humble guy that God greatly used. And beloved, in our world of optics and appearance and all of that personal look stuff that the world places so much emphasis on, but what is God interested in? You ever, you ever think, sorry, off the text for a minute. You ever think about David and Saul? What's Saul, right? Head and shoulders above every other guy. He was tall and he was handsome. That's how the Bible describes him. How does the Bible describe David? A man after God's own heart described him as ruddy. That's the reddish face. That's all they describe him as. That's it. And when the day came that Goliath came against the people of God, the tallest guy in the room, where is he? He's sitting down inside his tent so that nobody will notice that he's the tallest guy around. Who should have been fighting Goliath by physicality? Saul. He had the sword, he had the armor, he had the height advantage of every other Jewish guy. And who did God use? A shepherd, a humble shepherd boy who loved the Lord his God, was faithful with the sheep that God gave him to, and God used him to greatly lead and shepherd the people of God. God is far more interested, brothers and sisters, in our hearts than all that we can do in style and pizzazz and all the rest of it. It's a heart of humility before God. Why did God greatly use Uncle Jack? Because when Uncle Jack walked into the room, nobody would notice. He was just a quiet, gentle guy in the background. If you don't know who Uncle Jack is, ask me afterwards. I'll I'll explain to you. How do we serve? We remember the examples. We study the scriptures to see and know the example we have in Christ. We spend time in the Bible gazing at the Lord in glory, and we humble ourselves. We bend the knee. We change a perspective about ourselves before God, and then God can greatly use us. Remember the story of Uzziah? Greatly used by God until he became proud, and then God humbled him in a powerful way. Brother elders and deacons, pride goes before a great fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. So let's together humble ourselves before the God whom we serve, that he may use us, that we might not finish our ministry in shame, but with the words of the Lord ringing in our ears, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Brothers and sisters, please. All the church, pray for the elders of this church. Pray for the deacons of this church. That whatever remains of pride will be put away from us. That we will serve the Lord in this church with a Christ-like humility. Pray that God will raise up more, more elders and shepherds in this church with that same godly humility. God's shepherds serve the Lord with all humility. Fifthly, we serve the Lord with tears. Notice verse 19 that Paul says again, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. And in those two words, we see more of the heart of this great and humble man of God. In those two words, we see the great example for how we must also shepherd the sheep. 
In verse 19, he served the Lord with tears. In verse 31, he admonished the Ephesians with tears night and day for three years. In 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 4, Paul says he wrote them a severe letter out of much affliction, anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause them pain, but that they would know the abundant love he had for them. In Philippians 3, 17 and 18, Paul calls them to follow his example, observing those who walk according to the pattern they have in him, because, he tells them with tears, there are many who walk as the enemies of the cross of Christ. In Romans 9, verse 2, Paul confesses his great sorrow, his unceasing grief for the sake of the Israelites, who although they had adoption as sons, the glory and the covenants, the law, the temple service, and the promises, yet they do not know God's saving grace through faith in Christ. So Paul wept over them. What was it? And what what really was it that brought this man to man of God, to serve the Lord with tears. Stop for a moment and consider his life. He was born a Hellenistic Jew, a faithful Hebrew parents, a Roman citizen, a Pharisee. He'd been edu- educated at the best universities in Tarsus. And in Jerusalem, at the feet of the highly respected Gamaliel, he was taught. He had been a strong arm of the Jewish chief priests and scribes to act against what he thought was a heretical sect of the Jews, the followers of the way, Jesus the carpenter of Nazareth. He had everything any young 30-year-old first-century Jewish Roman citizen could possibly want, except possibly freedom from the Roman occupation. And then that day, (laughs) that day on the road, our Lord Jesus Christ met him on the Damascus road, confronted him and spoke to him and blinded him with the vision of his glory. He had received the saving grace of God through faith and without hesitation, he lost everything as a result. And yet, he could say later, writing from prison, that he considered everything to be rubbish and garbage in comparison with the surpassing excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus his Lord, for whose sake he had suffered the loss of all things and counted them but rubbish in order that he might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of his own, but that which came through faith in God. Nothing Satan could take away from Paul was greater than his joy in Christ. And nothing Satan could give him was any better than his joy in Christ. And so there was nothing Paul desired for others more than Christ and their joy in him. That's what drove him to tears. Beloved, I'm convinced... I'm convinced that his life before the Lord, his love of Christ, his great hope in Christ, his joyful service of Christ as a slave, his sorrowful yet always rejoicing life in Christ was so great, so sweet, so precious to him that his desire for everybody he met was that they would all know Christ as he did to the glory of Christ's name. It's like the guy with the pearl of great price, right? He went and sold everything he had to go and purchase the field and have that pearl. It was worth giving up it all. And in, the Bible says in that, in that parable, when Jesus is telling it, in his 
joy, he sold everything to get the pearl. And Paul looked at those around him. He looked at the church. He looked at what was going on in the Roman world in which he lived. And he wept as he saw men and women wasting their lives in the trivial things of this world. Believers who were living half-heartedly for the Lord. And he wept. He served with tears. Why? Because knowing, savoring, and delighting in Christ glorifies God above all else. So Paul had a God-given anguish and brokenness with tears for men to know the Lord. He shepherded the Ephesian believers by admonishing them with tears so that they might walk with obedient joy in the Lord because that glorifies God far more, infinitely more than half-hearted obedience. He saw the sin that the Corinthian believers were tolerating and enjoying and weeping with anguish. He shepherded them with scathing letter to call them to repentance of sin. That's a heart that's passionate for the joy of all believers and the glory of God's name. He saw his apostate fellow Israelites rejecting his beloved Messiah, and he longed for them to have the same joy of forgiveness that he did, the same joy of knowing Christ as he did, the same joy of freedom from the curse of the law that he had. And so there was an anguish in his heart for their joy and God's glory. It's not about getting a bunch of people to do what we want them to do. That's not shepherding. Any dictator can do that. Shepherding is leading and feeding and guiding and encouraging God's sheep to be in love with the Lord, to be enjoying the Lord to the very limits of what's possible, for their focus to be entirely on the Lord, not on the shepherd. Brother, elders, husbands and fathers, wives and mothers, believers, when we live like that, with the same joy in Christ, the same passion for God's glory, and the same love for God's sheep, then we'll weep for the souls of men and women. We'll weep when we see them walking carelessly before the Lord. We'll weep when we see them living too close to the world, too much encumbered and hindered by the trappings of the world to serve the Lord as they could, as we could. We'll weep over the church knowing that they could be enjoying but instead have traded for the cheap, fading thrills of this present world. We'll weep because God is being deprived of his rightful glory through their delight in him. That's when our shepherding service for the Lord will be with many tears. And, beloved, I, I can't emphasize this enough. I was preparing this and thinking, how can I stand there and say this? Because as much as I'd like to avoid it, the finger of the Holy Spirit is pushing deep into my chest and saying, where's your tears, pastor? Where's your anguish for the people of God? And I sat there and thought in there yesterday, thinking maybe I could do something else. Maybe I could just skip over, maybe I could just gloss over this, make a few points and move on. But I can't, because it's so convicting to me, and it's got to be convicting for us too. My prayer is that God would convict and crush us with this, 
that we as a church, every single one of us, not just the elders in the church, every single one of us would be convicted about serving the Lord with tears, longing for the people of God to be living and walking with the God like Paul did, like so many others have, that will do whatever we can to push them towards it, to encourage them, to lead them towards it. Paul was a great example of serving the Lord with tears, but he was not the only one. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet who shepherded the Lord's people with many tears because they would not listen to his words. Listen to what he says. In Jeremiah 13, verses 16 to 17, he, he speaks to people and says, Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness and before your feet stumble on the dusky mountains. And while you're hoping for light, he makes it a deep darkness and turns it into gloom. But if you will not listen to it, this is his words, My soul will sob in secret for such pride. That's the heart of a man of God in love, not just with the Lord, but with the Lord's people. My soul will sob in secret for such prize, and my eyes will bitterly weep and flow down with tears because the flock of the Lord has been taken captive. Jeremiah saw the pride of the people of God and pleaded with them to repent before God brought judgment against them, just like Paul in his severe letter to Corinth. Nehemiah the great man of God, a leader of God's people who wept over them, is an example of this. In Nehemiah 1, 1 1-4, he's heard of the great distress of the city, the reproach of the returned remnant, the broken walls, the burnt-out gates of the city, and the Bible says, he sat down and wept and mourned for days and was fasting and praying before the God of heaven for many days. Literally for three months, he sat there and wept and mourned. He wept in anguish over the reproach, the shame brought up to the people of God and the city of God. That was the place of God's presence for that time. It was a place where Jew and Gentile were to come and worship and pray to God. It was a place where God would grant forgiveness and reconciliation based on Christ's death still to come. And Nehemiah, the servant of the Lord, wept in anguish over it. I love the way that book starts. The walls are broken down, the gates are burned, the people are in approach. What would we do? Let's get a committee together, let's organize, let's get some stuff, we'll get some stone, get some wood, we'll run around, we'll get tools, we'll run over there and we'll build the wall. What's he do? He sits down, he weeps, he fasts, and he mourns for three months. He doesn't do a thing. Our world says, don't just stand there, do something. The message in Nehemiah's book, don't do something, stand still and pray and weep. Then when God leads, do something. The doing is important. Don't get me wrong. We'll get to that. But the heart of it is so much more important. But greater than Nehemiah and Paul, our Lord Jesus is the perfect example of a serving God, his Father, with tears. In John eleven thirty three to 35, Jesus wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He wept not merely, not nearly so much for his friend in the tomb, of a personal loss. He knew within minutes Lazarus would be standing there in front of them. Jesus wept because of the devastating effects of sin. It caused death and grief and weeping and sorrow and heartache and separation of friends and family. He wept 
knowing the hypocritical hearts of the mourners. He wept, knowing his own suffering for sin was so very near. There was in his heart a deep sorrow over the effects of sin on his people. In Luke 13, 34, and Luke 19, 41 to 44, Jesus saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground, your children with you, and they will not leave you one stone upon another." Our Lord Jesus, the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, wept because of his people that would not recognize him as the Messiah. They would not turn and repent of their sin and believe in him. And because he knew their actions would bring God's judgment in 40 short years. Brothers and sisters in Christ, listen. We're called through Nehemiah and Jeremiah and Paul and Christ's examples to serve the Lord brokenhearted with many tears, weeping over the state of the people of God, weeping over the lost who are facing God's imminent judgment, to serve the Lord weeping that some are choosing the trash of this world over the infinite joy in God to the glory of his name. So how do we develop the shepherd's heart to serve the Lord? Brothers and sisters, like Paul, we must live lives in wholehearted, joy-saturated love for Christ. Our own hearts have to be absolutely in love with the Lord. Our own call on us as shepherds is to first push aside the things that hinder us and slow us down from living life close to the Savior. Put them aside that we might live close to the Lord. That's the first thing. We must be willing, like Paul, to give up everything to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, to live with a passion for God's glory above all else. Like Nehemiah, we must live and minister knowing the reality of the state of God's church. That's why watching is so important in that passage we're going to get to. And resolving first before any action is taken to weep and mourn and pray over it. Like Jeremiah, we need to remember that God, God's redeemed people will face his discipline if they continue to live in unconfessed and unrepentant sin. And so we weep for God's people and God's glory. And we admonish and we plead with God's people with tears. Like Christ, we need to be continually reminded of God's coming wrath against sinners. And so, beloved, we must plead with God with tears the salvation of the lost. God's shepherds served the Lord with tears. But I don't want to give you the wrong impression about Paul. He didn't walk around with a box of Kleenex sobbing all the time. Because the Bible says, in, he says in 2 Corinthians 6.10, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Say, so hang on a second, how do those two go together? They do. Because then no matter how great his sorrow over the people of God was, his joy in God was still greater. He was sorrowful over what was happening. He was sorrowful what he saw. He was sorrowful over the way the church was going on. But he was always rejoicing in his Savior. We shed tears over the lost, over the people of God. But we also rejoice. We rejoice because there is indeed salvation for the lost in Christ. 
We rejoice because God has not finished his work. Not in me, not in any of you. I can weep over the church, and I need to weep over the church, but I can also rejoice that one day God's work in every one of us will be finished. And you and I have no concept of what we will be like when we stand in the presence of God and the work in us is finished and sin's presence has been removed and we are face to face with our glorified Savior. We can't even comprehend or imagine what it will be like. And we rejoice because God is working in us, all of us, to bring us that much further. We weep over what we see, but we rejoice because God is still working. We don't, I know it's out of context, but we don't mourn over the church as those who have no hope. We mourn over the church as those who have great hope because of what God is still doing. We rejoice because God has not finished. We rejoice because God's grace does so much abound. There is hope. We rejoice and we weep together. Oh, brothers and sisters in Christ, God has called us to shepherd his church. Recognized elders, we have to shepherd those under our charge. We're going to talk about what the, the, the actions of shepherding next week and the week after. Informal, unrecognized shepherds, we're all working and ministering and living amongst those whom we have an influence. We shepherd God's people in the power and the enablement of God's spirit. We shepherd in submission to God as Christ submitted himself. We shepherd in self-denial just as Christ denied himself. We shepherd with all humility as Christ humbled himself and with many tears as Christ shed tears of sorrow and grief over his people. We shepherd God's people looking to him, to Christ as the greatest example for us all. But for those who do not know Jesus Christ, and I got to finish here, I'm pointing to him. He is the good shepherd who laid down his life for you. He laid it down for you to save you from God's wrath. He is the good shepherd who allowed himself to be spiked to a cross to suffer and die for your sin. He is the good shepherd who is calling your name to hear his voice, to repent of your sin and believe the gospel, to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow him as shepherd in his, as sheep in his flock. That's the question left for all of us to answer. Will we do that? Will we deny ourselves, take up the cross that Christ calls us to bear, and follow him? That we not only follow him, but as those who follow us will see our example and shepherd those behind them. That's a call on us, beloved. It's so easy to just live in church like it's your golf club or your darts club or hockey club or whatever other club you're involved in. You pay your dues, you show up, you enjoy some benefits. When you come when it suits and not when it doesn't, you're somewhat involved with those in the club, but it's just a distant, loose connection. That is not what God designed his church to be. 
He designed us to be woven together, tight alongside of each other. One helping the other, them helping those few, and, and those relationships cross lines all across the church. We're a body. We're not a club. We're a body bound together with, with Christ, bound together in Christ, that we might each shepherd. I learn from you. I hope and pray that God teaches you through me. But I learn much from watching you and seeking to bring what the scriptures teach to you Sunday by Sunday. But I'm learning and I'm growing too. And God's not finished with me. He's not finished with any one of us. He's still working. That's why we're all still here in each other's lives doing what we can do to shepherd each other towards a greater, deeper love for the Lord, a greater and deeper faith in God, and a greater and deeper repentance of sin. Amen? Would you stand with me? We're going to pray, and then we'll sing the benediction song together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give thanks again this morning for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our great High Priest, our Shepherd, the Good Shepherd who laid down His life for us. Father, we thank You and we praise You for His whole life as an example, His humility that none of us can even begin to fully understand, His tears over his people, knowing the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at your right hand. Father, we give thanks for that great example. Father, we give thanks that we, we serve, that we can serve in humility, we can serve with tears, we can serve all the while rejoicing that Christ has won the victory. Rejoicing that we do not serve in our own strength, but in the strength that you supply. Rejoicing that the work in us is not yet finished, but we know for a certainty it will be finished soon. Father, we give thanks. We praise you, O God, for our Savior. Father, for the one, two, three or more that are standing here this morning that have never fully repented of sin and trusted in Christ. Father, we pray that they would look to Jesus. They would see the good shepherd of their souls who laid down his life for them. That they would hear the call of the Holy Spirit on their hearts and they would respond in repentance and in faith. Father, we cry out to you for your work to be done in their lives even this day. Father, we give thanks again for our time in the Word, our time of worship together. And Father, now for a time, for a few hours, and we'll enjoy some fellowship around some food with each other. Father, we pray that our fellowship would be sweet. And we ask it, Father, in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.